Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. So we're in the first week of Advent, and the gospel is very straightforward. Jesus tells us to watch. Here's the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, Be watchful, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his own work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore. You do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning. May not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. Well, those are words the disciples will quickly forget. And we'll talk about that this week in Oro Valley Catholic. And remember that the Lord is cautioning us against the sin, the deadly sin of sloth. Sloth in lazy thinking, sloth in not being purposeful in our, our speech, and sloth in laziness in action. So as we prepare for Advent, and hopefully for all of us to make a good confession during the season of Advent, let's remember, let's be awake, let's watch. And now, let's turn to a discussion of the Gospel. Don't fall asleep, stay awake and watch. Sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. To the early Christian monks, they called spiritual sloth, asadia, the noonday devil. It's like in the middle of the day when you just don't feel like doing anything. Or think about it, is maybe you had, were fervent as a younger Catholic, but um, midlife, so many things to think about, it all kind of fell apart. Asadia, the noonday devil, spiritual sloth. So sloth is a sense that all is well, no need to change, all I have to do is coast. I've done my thing, uh, don't really need to do anything else, I've paid my dues. We may passionately pursue various successes in our life, or, uh, but not in the spiritual life. We think we have all our sacraments and we just need to wait it out for the eternal paycheck. Uh, I think about it like having your passport checked. There's really nothing else you have to do. Um, check off eternal life. Uh, and that's why Jesus regards sloth as the spiritual killer. And it's the spiritual killer in the gospel. Today, as we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent, the Lord re repeats, watch, avoid sloth. The disciples didn't take his advice to heart. And so, uh, when you turn, this is chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark, which is the gospel we'll be going through in this um, new liturgical year. But uh, the Gospel of Mark makes, uh, makes it perfectly clear that the disciples ignored Jesus' warning, and they were asleep when the soldiers came for him. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So Mark 13. The biggest thing to remember about Mark 13, and it's how the Gospels are structured, Mark 12 and Mark 14, those are the two hamburger buns on either side of the meat. This is Mark 13. Mark 12 ends with a story you probably remember. Jesus is there with his disciples in the temple area, the old temple, the one that would be destroyed by the Romans. And he's looking across and he sees a little old lady throw her last two cents into the uh, temple treasury. Jesus says, this old lady has given more than all the rest combined because 
she gave her last two cents. But think about it. It's the old temple. So we'll talk about 13, but you have to understand what's framing it. If you go to chapter 14, it starts with the anointing in Bethany. And if you remember, this lady comes, a sinful lady, and she has this expensive alabaster jug, which is a carved stone jug. So that's an expensive jug and carved thin, and it's full of an an ointment called nard. And she breaks it over Jesus in this lavish show of anointing him, preparing him for his death. And uh, you remember Judas is is very critical. Can't that money have been given to the poor? And everybody's, oh, this is shocking, shocking, so shocking. They, of course, did not live to see American TV. But at least in chapter 14, the idea of this sinful woman touching the rabbi and anointing them with this oil she's gotten through, I would point out her ill-gotten gains, um, the, uh, the prophets of sin. But Jesus says, no, 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 what she's doing for me will be remembered through all ages. Because the little old lady, she showered her wealth on um, the temple. Um, the young lady with the ill-gotten gains, she's bringing it all to God because it's all you can do with sin. If you're a sinner, I mean, how do you separate out what you got honestly and what's uh, somewhat tainted in our lives? But to give it all to God, this is the offering that Jesus wants. And so in between those two stories about these women and the old temple that's destroyed by the Romans and the new temple that's crucified by the Romans and risen from the dead, um, This is how Mark 13 starts out. I already read the end of Mark 13, which is about watch, about uh, pay attention. But here's how it begins. As he was making his way out of the temple area, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what stones and what buildings, how beautiful the temple is on Mount Zion. Um, But he's immediately set to task. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? And they apparently were pretty magnificent. There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple area, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when this will happen and what sign will there be when all these things are about to come to an end? Jesus began to say to them, see that no one deceives you. So in reading Mark 13, uh, remember the question that's being asked. Jesus said, that the temple's going to be torn down. The Romans literally tear it down and throw the rocks over the side. You can still see them there in Jerusalem today. And where Jesus is sitting on the Mountain of Olives, that's, if you see a picture of Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it's always taken from the Mount of Olives. So you know exactly what they're looking at, except that the temple is gone and the Muslims, the Islam has put up uh, this this other building, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But the question that Jesus is answering is not about the end of the world. It is about the temple being destroyed. And so the ancient historians, Josephus and Suetonius, Josephus is from the first century AD and Suetonius is born in the first century AD. But I think he writes in the early part of the second century. They talked about the great Jewish war that was provoked by a Messiah wannabe after Jesus' death. As the direct result of one more Messiah, the temple was destroyed about 37 years after Jesus spoke these words. In chapter 13 of Mark, 
He says it'll happen within a generation. And a biblical generation is 40 years. So if Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives in, say, the year 30 or the year 33, well, we know the temple was destroyed in August of the year 70. Uh, the, uh, the Jews still celebrate that in August. Although in Mark 13 says, pray it doesn't happen in the winter because the Jordan floods and pregnant women will have trouble escaping. That's Mark 13, he cautions, pray it doesn't happen in winter. Well, you know, if it's about the end of the world, uh, where are pregnant women gonna run to? The whole place is coming to an end. This is about the Roman war that'll happen within a generation of Jesus's death. You know, it's interesting, one of the things you may ask, when will this happen? It's in another gospel. And Jesus says, where the body lies, the vultures will gather. That's one of the things he says about the destruction of the Jewish temple. But if you go back to the original Greek in that, the word isn't vulture. They had a different word for vulture. The word that he used is eagle. Now, an eagle does feed on carrion, but it's not how we English speakers, or especially as Americans, think about it. We mostly think about vultures feeding on carrion, but eagles feed on it. But the reference isn't to a bird of prey that feeds on dead animals. The Roman legion, legions, when they had their, um, their essentially their banner, their flag, uh, you'll always see it, it's like the American flag, there is an eagle on top of it. And so what Jesus is referring to is the Roman legions and their eagles gathering around Mount Sinai as the uh, Zion as the mount as the uh, temple is destroyed. Um, you know when the when the Romans destroyed that in the year seventy, they immediately renamed Jerusalem Capitolina, and they put up a uh, temple to maybe it was Saturn there on the holy mount, which was torn down. And at some point after the, the Roman Empire became uh, more friendly to Christianity, they also put up a temple over the place where Jesus was uh, crucified and buried um, because the Romans always wanted to take over the sacred territory of other religions and claim it for their own. They were very dominating. But uh, when St. Helena, who was the mother of, of Constantine, the emperor that recognized the Catholic uh, church, the Christian religion in 315, 325 AD. His mom made a pilgrimage, she was a Christian, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And the Christians there pointed to this uh, Roman temple. They said that was on uh, Mount Calvary um, and that it had been put up there two or three centuries earlier. So she's, she's the emperor's mom. She just orders that it be destroyed. And so that if you ever go to the Holy Sepulchre, the church there, I think the oldest parts of that church, and I think especially the Edicule, um, may go back to, uh, to Helena's time or certainly the early, uh, early Middle Ages. Um, but I just think that's all interesting that there's, they always talk about, you know, uh, the evidence for Jesus. And I gotta be kidding, there's more evidence for Jesus than there is for any other ancient character. Um, but, you know, in a world that's kind of anti-religion uh, and has just disconnected from reality, uh, things become true because you just assert them or you feel they're true. But uh, the reality of the archaeology that's there in Jerusalem, um, 
No, this is where Jesus was crucified. That's where the temple was. Islam has made a big claim that the Jews never were there and the temple wasn't there. But it's it. we just live in such a weird time in so many ways. That's why I think it's important that we keep going over these stories, uh, reminding ourselves who they are. Otherwise, the kingdom of lies prevails. And you can't live in a kingdom of lies. You may have had that experience of trying to do that. It just doesn't make any sense. And so the point of all of this is, is Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world, although he points out it will come after the temple is destroyed, but it's uh, a date that only the Father knows. And so people who come up with these theories that, that now all the biblical prophecies are fulfilled and the end will come, uh, boy, this has been over and over again. It's where the Jehovah's Witnesses come from. It's where the Mormons come from. They all start out as the end of time of sex in the 19th century, the Seventh-day Adventists also. It's the, it's the craziness of it. And that's why when you see Catholics do it, you just shake your head and you think, well, you don't pay attention uh, to all of these things. The end is coming, my friends, on a time when the Father decides, not us. And he hasn't didn't tell the Son, and he sure as heck didn't tell us. But you know, there is this thing about watch that is in the um, it's in the scriptures, and I don't know if you remember the part where it says that um, that the master might come back. Uh, let me see if I can find the part really quick here. Um, the master will come back. Uh, watch, therefore, you do not know when the Lord of the house is coming whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning, all of that. So that's chapter 13. When you get to Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, here's how Mark puts it out. They get together for the Last Supper, and it says it was evening. Uh, it says that, I think, in Mark 15. Okay, so Jesus says, watch it evening. And Jesus talks about betrayal. Does anybody get in that story that Judas is the one that's going to be betraying them, betraying Jesus? How alert are they? Not at all. Then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember, they all fall asleep. And Jesus comes three times um, to wake them up. And the third time, the soldiers arrive. And so it was explained to me that if you go through how the hours worked back then, which is a little bit different than we got to remember... Um, the hours that we have on the watch, that's more of a modern invention. They thought about it differently. It was built differently because there were no clocks in the ancient world. And so those three hours between evening, um, those are the three hours that are at midnight where Jesus says, watch. And of course, they're asleep. Uh, the disciples, when the soldiers show up uh, to arrest them, and then cock crow. And if you remember, that's the next thing they're supposed to watch, and Peter should be on the alert. But is he? Heck no. He denies Jesus twice before the cock crows, just like Jesus says. I mean, Jesus is feeding it to them. What's going to happen? Are they paying attention? No, they're not paying attention. And then what happens when it says it's morning? Um, he's being tried um, by uh, the Roman uh, authorities. And where are the disciples? Nowhere to be found. I just think, how Mark tells the story, it's about the glory of God and the failure of us disciples. So we ought to take some kind of hope out of, um, out of the story as Mark tells it. Um, so 
what's being compared in the in the story of the passion in Mark, which we start out the new year with, is the Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple, but Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the new temple and his resurrection also. And so when he talks about coming back in Mark 13, um, at a time when only the Father knows, um, the gospel's told this way because you and I are supposed to pay attention. We're supposed to watch. Um, you know, it's really interesting. You go through Mark's gospel. He talks about that uh, God is, Jesus is going to come on the powers of glory and he's going to send his angels, his messengers out to gather all of God's people. Well, you know, that's what the apostles are done. That's why we evangelize in the church and we share our faith with other people because uh, throughout the 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose from the dead, um, this message has been taken out to all the world. And so what's the takeaway from Mark 13? Well, a transition between the old temple and the new. We are part of the new temple, and the new temple has some obligations that go with it, uh, where these two women, this old woman and this young woman, are shown as examples of the disciple uh, giving it all to Christ. And what's the sin that undermines the generosity with which disciples are called to live their life? My friends, it's the sin of sloth, sin in thought, word, and deed. So let's talk about spiritual sloth and the virtue that we need to combat it as we prepare for our uh, Advent confessions. St. Thomas Aquinas taught that sloth, uh, quote, denotes a sorrow for spiritual good. It is evil on two counts, both in itself and in point of its effect. So not only is sloth, uh, which is uh, sorrow of uh, uh, not attaining a spiritual good, uh, but it keeps us from getting the spiritual good. Sloth is just our unwillingness to do the good. It's our unwillingness to actively practice love because the good is all rooted in love. Um, the sign of spiritual sloth is when you are lazy about spiritual things, prayer, fasting, mass, study, but you can find plenty of time for diversions up to and including whatever nonsense is on cable or the internet. The slothful excel at diversions. That's Blaise Pascal from the 17th century. He's, and this is before the internet or TV. Why do human beings have so many diversions? Uh, because it keeps them from doing what they're supposed to do. This is what sin is. Sin is a sin against rationality, um, taking our own lives seriously. America's most deadly sin might well be sloth, expressed as an indifference to the truth of religion and to the reality of the spiritual life. I think if you can think that you're a man in a woman's body, if your thinking is that lazy uh, that you can't come to terms with um, biological reality and that there is just some disconnection uh, that people suffer between how they think about themselves and what the reality of their embodied situation is, um, 
If you can believe that, why can't you believe what you want about the gospel? Uh, why can't you believe that there's no God, but boy, I have heaven. Uh, it's just uh, the ability, the inability to think things through, which is um, an intellectual sloth. Laziness, which is not showing up on time. How much of perseverance is just about showing up on time for mass or uh, to visit your, your mom or to take care of the kids? Sloth in words, sloth in uh, in word is when um, you just get lazy in expressing yourself, um, as sometimes is my affliction. Uh, the lack of a filter between what I think in my lazy mind and what my lazy lips say. So how is it that we take the offensive and learn to um, uh, live lives of virtue? Well, the virtue is perseverance. And so let's talk about the way perseverance is a virtue contrary to sloth uh, is expressed. So perseverance and thought. Why do priests wear black? Black's supposed to remind us of our death, and death is the end of our service to God in this life, at least. Death is good if we've been who God made us to be, but if not, death may not be so good for us. Not everybody has a happy near-death experience or apparently a happy experience after death. St. Basil wrote that the chief mark of the Christian is to watch daily and hourly and to stand prepared in that state of total responsiveness pleasing to God. So the priest wears black to remember he's going to be judged as a priest, and that's kind of a scary thing. But, you know, I stand shoulder to shoulder with the grandparents and parents and people trying to live their lives responsibly. We're supposed to show some recompense to God, some increase of investment for the God that gives us everything that we are. Because as St. Basil says, uh, our death is coming when we don't expect it. So that's a, that's a sobering thought. St. John Henry Newman wrote, God has created me to do some definite service. He's committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I should be told it in the next. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He's not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it if I do but keep his commandments. I think Thomas Merton's prayer is great. Lord, you know, I'm not always sure that what I'm doing is pleasing you, but I am sure that I am at least trying to please you as best I understand it. And I also hope, Lord, that you find that my desire to please you is in fact pleasing. So how do we escape being angels of peace, preachers of truth, or having any kind of uh, integration or holistic conscience where we can feel like we're doing what we can in a human way? First, uh, perseverance and thought. Avoid grumpiness. Um, all those negative thoughts that are so easy to fall into. Brothers and sisters, for all of us, because when we think badly of other people or we're fearful of the future or whatever, it just feeds our sloth. And then when we start talking about it, it disheartens others. The cure for grumpiness is to remind ourselves that our death is coming and um, let's have something beautiful to give to God. That's Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Better that we're here supporting each other in the life of faith. Let's encourage each other. Let's be realistic about the challenges. You know, we're not called to be namby-pamby, but uh, we are called um, 
to live zealous lives and lives of perseverance uh, in the truth. And it really starts in controlling our minds. David Foster Wallace, uh, who twice took RCIA, but he said he always flunked RCIA. He never ended up converting. But he probably would have been a great Catholic. Maybe Jesus looks at it differently. Who knows? The guy kind of was uh, had some, some emotional difficulties. Um, but he used to say, everybody worships someone or something. Um, and so that when it comes to controlling your mind and focusing on this greatest good as you recognize it, the service of Jesus. He says, the mind is a terrible master, but it can be a tremendous servant if you control it. And so perseverance in thought, controlling what happens between your ears. Then perseverance in word. Vigilance is the mark of a Christian, but probably very few of us when we wake up in the morning seriously consider the possibility that I'm going to die today. Um, it's true that the world as a whole might not end today, but my little part in it can come to its end anytime and abruptly. So why grumble? Um, why be lazy? The one thing St. Benedict couldn't tolerate in a monk is grumbling and complaining. He says it spreads strife and separates friends. Grumbling makes us and others restless and angry. Idlers gadding about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. How much of their gossip or the things that you wish you could take back that you said is really just like a diversion. Um, it's dealing with being angry, tired, lonely, bored. Those are the examples of sloth. Those are the symptoms of sloth. And so perseverance in word is um, thinking about what we say. Um, and so in saying things for the good of another, um, be encouraging. Perseverance indeed. You know, our actions will, our, how we think, how we speak, often are just expressed later in what we in fact do. And so if we're grumpy or we're slothful, if we're just not attentive to our daily duties, which are showing up in time, doing what we're supposed to do, uh, paying attention to the tasks that we have in a day, um, you know, avoiding internet nonsense and trash and all of that, um, doing something useful with our lives. Uh, we should be thinking of the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Other uh, Christian duties to feed the hungry. That's how, remember, the last liturgical year ended, is pay attention to other people's bodily needs. And the spiritual works, pay attention to other people's spiritual needs. And so pray for them. Um, encourage them. Counsel them when they're feeling bad or feeling down. Uh, all of these things are how it also we can awake our zeal for our faith, because there is something deeply empowering about choosing to love another person instead of just sinking back in your armchair and staring vacantly at the wall. Um, so we can join into the generalized apathy of our time, which is basically characterized by endless channel surfing, uh, endless uh, surfing on computers, and just in this Advent, choose a book that will actually help you and that you would enjoy reading and gets you and your mind and your words and your actions 
directed in um, the, the appropriate direction. So the book I always like to recommend is a book called Humility Rules, and it's uh, by a man named uh, Augustine Weta, and he is a Benedictine monk. And it's really an enjoyable read. I think, yeah, you know, there are times to take things on that are intellectually challenging, but the something can challenge you in your faith and you would just love reading it. It's like I had great joy in reading St. Therese's Story of a Soul. But Humility Rules was another great book that was just about all the different ways to think about practicing humility. Just long enough for the three weeks of Lent, you can get it off Kindle, Humility Rules by Augustine Weta, CSSR, I think it is, or whatever the initials are for a Benedictine monk. Um, but he's going to just tell you the same stuff I'm telling you. He's just better because he's a better writer than I am. Um, but that is the spiritual and corporal works of mercy that are the great defense that we have to the assault of sloth on our souls. So the works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor and his spiritual and bodily necessities. Instructing, advising, consoling, comforting our spiritual works of mercy as are forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. Not easy stuff to do. The corporal works of mercy consist especially in feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and in prison, and burying the dead. Among all of these, giving alms to the poor, according to Proverbs, is like lending money to God, and God becomes your debtor. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great image of why it is that we support the different um, charities that we support? And so I'll leave you with that as you prepare for this um, new liturgical year. Um, don't be lazy. Watch. Get ready. Jesus is coming. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. Thank you for listening.